Welcome back to another episode of Consciously Clueless. I'm your host, Carly, and I'll be your guide on this journey from consciousness to cluelessness and back around again. Today on the podcast, I talk to Chloe Miko all the way from Belgium. Chloe is a citizen lobbyist for Green EU Policy. She is the founder of a environmental education NGO. She hosts her own podcast called The Burning Case Podcast, talking about politics and democracy. It was so amazing to talk to Chloe and be reminded how much change is needed on a systematic level and how we can do that. Enjoy the episode. So again, thank you so much for making this work and figuring out the time zone change. That's my major challenge in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. No worries. I'm, I'm really happy and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So the first question I like asking is um, just kind of about how you're doing. So the podcast is called Consciously Clueless and there's that idea of being conscious and being with it and feeling like we've got it figured out. And then there's those moments of, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm so clueless <laughs> what's going on and everything in between. So I'm just curious where you feel like you are today or in this moment or whatever it is. Um, I'd say I'm okay. I really struggle every year with fire seasons mm-hmm. um, because I, I don't know, just the thought of something so ancient and so beautiful as forest and everything that lives in the forest. So the animals and all the plants just being completely destroyed because of our decisions Mm. is something that really impacts me. So it's been happening every year. Last year was mainly the Amazon. And this year, I mean, it's of course the Amazon. It's also the fires in California. It just, it really hits a button for me and it makes me really anxious and really sad so like this is not the best period of the year but and also with everything that's going on with coronavirus it's just it's it's a really uncertain future so yeah it it really depends on the day today's been a good day because I I met a colleague and we worked together so that was nice um but yeah depends (laughs) yeah that's interesting to think of um the time of year, like we often talk about the time of year being hard in Northern Minnesota being, you know, winter and kind of that time, but thinking about the destruction as the different seasons is really interesting the way you put that. Yeah. 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 No, it's a, it's a struggle every year, but gotta keep moving on and and believing that a better future is possible. Otherwise we wouldn't be, you know, doing what we're doing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We wouldn't be here talking, right? (laughs) Exactly. So I really, really appreciate following you on social media because your ability to make these like really big topics approachable and digestible and understandable Mm. is really, really important. And I think that, so thank you for that (laughs) because I've learned a lot. Um, But tell me a little bit more about being a um, lobbyist for the green EU policy and like what is that what does that mean for us yeah. here in the states um so essentially the EU is currently developing um a green strategy which is one of the most ambitious in the world um it's called the EU green deal so a bit similar to what you have in the US with the green new deal 
And when you look at the numbers, it, it is the most ambitious in the world um, when it comes to tackling climate breakdown, when it comes to biodiversity, when it comes to foods. Um, it's, it's really interesting and it's really good to see that they're finally taking this into account. It's not where we should be in terms of science and in terms of actually mm. reaching the objectives that were set um, at the Paris Agreement, but it's, it's good. Um, and the thing is, the EU is so important for the entire world, just like the US is in terms of influence. But the thing is, the EU is one of the largest markets in the world. Mm. So that means that Europeans uh, consume a lot of stuff yeah. that comes from around the world. So the EU has a huge influence because whatever it decides is going to have consequences for the rest of the world. So just to give you an example, if the EU decides to stop making trade agreements with, I don't know, South America, which is the, the, all the countries under the term Mercosur, so that gathers, I think, 11 countries from South America, but I'm not sure. Okay. If the EU decides to put criteria in those trade agreements, environmental, sustainability, social justice uh, criteria, then this has a huge influence because losing a market like the EU it's just an economic disaster for a lot of countries. Wow. So the EU really has this leadership. The problem is, as I was saying, it's not ambitious enough. And the EU sometimes kind of does two steps forward, one steps back, because the, the influence of lobbyists here in Brussels, and especially corporate lobbyists, is huge. We are actually second only to Washington in terms of the amount of, of corporate lobbyists. We have 25,000 people here in Brussels that identify as lobbyists. Wow. And the amount in 2016, the amount that was poured into lobbying was 1.6 billion euros. So that's a lot of money for one year. Um, and so the thing is, there's this presence on one side, the corporate lobbyist. And on the other side, there's the thing that the EU is not really accessible for a lot of people in Europe. Um, it's being blamed for a lot of things that are going wrong in Europe. You know, every time there's a problem with the price of agricultural commodities, all the farmers are saying, well, it's the fault of the EU. Um, mm. Every time there's a ban on, I don't know, a certain product, oh, it's the fault of the EU. Because it wasn't designed to be accessible, really. Or it was, but it's just really poorly communicated. Okay. So citizens feel really distant. And so it's really important to bring back these opportunities to feedback and influence back to citizens, because we can't just rely on the ambition of EU policymakers. And certainly we can't just rely on the influence of corporate lobbying that right. is dragging us down. So part of my job, uh, I'm actually working for a campaign specifically on the issue of planned obsolescence, but I also follow everything that relates to sustainability at the EU level. And so part of my What was job the was, thing you were specifically working on? Um, it's a campaign that targets planned obsolescence. So the fact that products and especially electronic products fail after a certain time, Got because it. then, you know, designed to fail or they're not repairable. Okay. And of course, from a sustainability point of view, we want to extend the life of these products. Right. Um, so Thank I'm working you. on that, but I, oh, no worries, but <laughs> I also, yeah, tell me, because there's a lot of jargon, especially in the EU and working there, you tend to use a lot of jargon. So don't hesitate to interrupt. Um, and and yeah, so on the side, I'm really interested in everything that relates to sustainability and sustainability policies. And so what I'm trying to do is really to try to make those concepts accessible and understandable by as many people as possible. And also through the Burning Case podcast that I recently launched is to 
give means of actions to people that feel mm. distant and delusion delude, um, delusionized disillusioned or... Del- okay. yes, <laughs> from, from policy making and yeah. a lot of people feel that way especially in Europe mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of the goal is break down these concepts but also provide means of action so that we don't we don't just have informed citizens we have informed citizens that are ready to act and get involved in the policy making process I think that's so important because there's so many important conversations happening in the United States right now, whether it's yeah. racial justice or sustainability. Um, I think conversations are happening because they just like couldn't not happen anymore, right? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of, okay, great, I know about this problem, but then it's really overwhelming to say, okay, shit, I know about the problem, but yeah, like, what do I do? What do I yeah. do with all this information? Exactly, exactly. And um, whether it's sustainability, whether it's racism, whether it's, it's gender equality, the problem is for a very long time, and that's especially the case when it comes to sustainability, we've put the responsibility and the blame on individuals. It's like, it's your fault um, if there's climate breakdown because you fly too much, because you eat too much meat, because you consume too much. And Partially, it's true, you know, it's our responsibility as individuals as well. The problem is, if you make your zero waste too spaced, or if you reduce your meat consumption, it's great, it's going to make you feel better. And it's a great first step towards being informed. Right. But even if everyone starts being super conscious, eco-conscious on the planet, we're not going to get to where we need in order to preserve human life and, and just life on Earth. Because we need a radical change. We need a um, policy change and we need an economic change. And this can only happen if we mobilize to change the system. So not Mm -hmm. just ourselves, which is super important, don't get me wrong, but we also need to get to that next step of mobilizing at policy level. And policymakers aren't too keen on, you know, letting us do that because that would literally mean changing the status quo. So they're not really open. So this is why it's so important to really understand policy processes, where are the opportunities to lobby for change? All these kind of things where we can push and pressure in order to really achieve this system change, which needs to come as well as the individual change. I think that that is so important to talk about because especially at first, when I started learning about sustainability, I felt like one, I needed to change the world. Like it was yeah. like my responsibility. And if yeah. I messed up any of my individual actions, I was a terrible person. Yeah. And not that you shouldn't, like you said, strive for that and do all those things, not only for your own health and well-being, but they yeah. contribute. But the system change is really, really important. And I think that conversation is happening more and more here, at least yeah. in the States. And just overall, because it's much easier for systems to stay in place if they like distract us and say, buy this like reusable water bottle and do this and do that. Um, But that's really hard, I think, specifically in um, not only the United States, but in my town, there's a lot of talk about racism, specifically um, indigenous people were right next to a reservation. So there's a lot yeah. of really important conversations happening right now. And I think what's really hard for people to wrap their head around is like that it's systematic. Yeah. Like yeah. to talk about racism for someone who doesn't want to have that conversation to not, um, think you're calling them a racist. 
Yeah, yeah. And and to say like, no, 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 I'm just saying that the system we're in is built on these foundations is really hard to wrap your head around. It is. I think it's it's really hard to just acknowledge privilege and especially what mm. privilege. Um, I I've been following a lot what's been happening in the U.S., but I have to say, I'm not an expert in what's happening in the U.S. either. Right, right. Um, I I more familiar I would say with what's happening in the EU mm-hmm. though of course the US influences a lot the EU but um yeah I feel like there's this systematic issues and we've been putting a lot of the blame on individuals as I was saying and th- there's also this notion of privilege even in the environmental movements there's that goes with this you know blaming the individuals um not everybody is able to you know just live a zero waste lifestyle i mean you have to admit it's convenient to buy pre-packaged products because that means you don't need the time to do your products you don't need to sometimes it's more expensive um let's face it i don't know what's what it's like in the u.s sometimes you don't live near as your waste shop because let's be honest at least here in europe it's it's mostly in privileged white wealthy neighborhoods where you know young people are getting more and more interested um we have a lot of um, disadvantaged neighborhood here in Brussels, and I'm actually currently studying the amount of zero waste slash organic shops and where they are located here in Brussels. And it's really interesting because you see that most of them are located in wealthy neighborhoods and not in disadvantaged neighborhoods. And I created an NGO a few years ago that did sustainability education in high schools, especially mm. disadvantaged neighborhoods. And it was really interesting conversation because for them, they didn't really see why they were supposed to care about the environment because they just had so much to focus on on a day-to-day basis. You know, that the, the school was really shitty. They didn't really have that many perspective for the future. The parents were struggling to get by at the end of the month. And so they were like, why should I care about climate change? You know, it's like, it's yeah. a rich problem. And they weren't wrong. It's, it's a, the privileged people really have to acknowledge as privilege first and realize that it's mainly their responsibility to act on that and it's through relevant public policies it's through relevant investments it's you can't expect everyone to live a zero waste lifestyle or eco-friendly lifestyle if it's not accessible to them right um and for years and years and years what we've been doing and for me that's a big part of the problem is that instead of removing the bad stuff from the shelves from the supermarket from the shops like the bad products Mm-hmm. We've been putting an eco premium on the good ones, which make them even less accessible. Yes. So buying organic is going to cost you more. So instead of, of just banning some certain products or, or just banning food that comes from the other side of the world at certain seasons, or just maybe not banning, but making them more expensive, actually, mm. so that the price of organic products or local products reduces, we've been doing it the other way around and this just doesn't make sense at the end of the day because we you know putting even more the blame on these privileged people you know oh they're not eating organic they're not eating that way or consuming that way but it's because it's actually cheaper and that that doesn't make sense at all and we really need a proper policy change on that so for it sounds like and correct me if i'm wrong a lot of the work you're doing and that you talk about is really about like systematic change. And so like, that's where a lot of your focus comes in. So when people are, let's say like listening to this podcast episode and they're like, okay, we need systematic change. 
what do you tell people that are kind of first starting out in that journey? Like where, where do we start? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I just want to say that for me, it was a process. Like Mm. if I, if I take you back 10 years, I was living in Paris. I was consuming, like my life was around consumption. Um, So, you know, Paris is a very fashionable city and of some friends that work in the fashion sector or, you know, like the communication sector. So it was really about always consuming like fashion, always like kind of looking different, always looking cool for the parties and the clubs and everything. And so I used to consume a lot. Mm-hmm. And then my parents, one of them's a journalist and the other one traveled a lot. So I spent a lot of my childhood and my teenage years flying around the world. I am probably one of the most privileged people when it comes to traveling. I've been to a lot of countries. Mm. And I had no idea, like, like I was just completely clueless. And then I went to university. And one thing I always loved was animals. <laughs> I loved mm-hmm. animals my whole life. And when I got to university, I, there was a scandal in France about palm oil and how palm oil was partly responsible for the deforestation in Indonesia. And so, you know, you could see like pictures of orangutans dying yeah. in forests, And that was really shocking to me. And that was like the starting point of it all. Like I started mm. from being probably one of the worst offender when it comes to the environment <laughs> to kind of starting to learn about the environment. And I studied something completely different. And then after my bachelor degree, I was like, I'm really interested in those issues. I want to learn more. So I ended up doing a master's in environmental science and management. Okay. And even during my master's and for a few years after, I thought that I could buy my way into sustainability like a lot of people. I was really putting the focus on individual change. So I went vegan. I flew much less. And I have to say, I still fly. (laughs) So, but I flew much less. I started to consume super zero waste. I was very strict. And as you were saying, I was exactly like you. I was Mm -hmm. just like blaming myself when I was ordering out or, you know, doing something that wasn't super eco. And so, yeah, I was literally like on that path. And then I started learning. I started listening to podcasts or listening to people or reading books and kind of really understanding that, as I was saying, even if I convinced everyone around me to live that same lifestyle, it wouldn't, it would have an impact for sure, but it wouldn't have the necessary impacts to actually tackle climate breakdown. So I think that's really what I want to say is that it's a process and maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're not to the level of influencing policy making and that's fine if you're already taking the steps in your everyday life that's great it's it's it really is amazing because you're already maybe even in your community you're maybe the first one so it's really great so don't beat yourself up um it's just that if you've been doing this little individual change for a while and you think maybe it's time to take it to the next level then you should you know you shouldn't be put off by it it's hard to influence policymaking. It's impossible. I can't do it as an individual. We can all do it. Um, I know it's in the US, it mm-hmm. can be a bit different, the processes and how to meet because there's like the Senate and there's like the Chamber of Representatives. So it's a bit different, but we can all influence our policy, even the super local one. It's right. completely doable. Um, we, I'm doing a bit, little bit of self-promotion here, but <laughs> as part do of it. the burning case, um, we're actually going to release at the end of the year, a series of episodes that is exactly about what are the steps that we can take and anyone can take to become a citizen lobbyist. That's how, that's what we call it. So to really 
pick up pick your issue identify who you're supposed to influence how to form a coalition how to literally and this works at every level from the super basic level if you're in a little village and the mayor wants to cut some trees in the park and you're super against that because you're like why should we cut some trees instead of planting it or right the mayor doesn't want to allow one vegetarian meal in the school or all these little things right. that's fine that's your level if you want to go higher it also works if you even want to go european and influence european policy making it also works and we're going to make it super concrete and hands-on so that everybody can learn these steps these tools and influence people themselves so that is it really depends on where you are in this journey um, i love that you'll have to i'll have to stay in touch and share that so i can sure share it out. That sounds amazing because I think that's the problem for a lot of people. It's like, I care about this. I'm interested, but I just, I'm like so unfamiliar yeah. and it's really overwhelming. The internet is scary when you Google like yeah. <laughs> how to solve this problem. But I want to circle back and say, I so appreciate you talking about your own journey and it being a process, because I think that's another thing that makes this conversation really inaccessible. Yeah. And I know, like I mentioned, when I first started diving in, I was like, all in. I have to be zero waste. I have to fit my trash in a yeah. jar for the year. And I have to, you know, like I'll be, I'll be vegan forever. That's for a whole yeah. another host of reasons. But I was like this, 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 this. And it was also not fun anymore. It was yeah. also, it felt like a burden. It felt yeah. like I was judging myself. I was judging all the people around me. Yeah. Because I was like, yep. why don't you understand? I'm saving the world. Why aren't exactly. you saving the world with me? And yep. knowing it's a process, I think is important because there are some quote unquote influencers um, yeah. on social media that I think whether it's intentional or not, give the impression that it's like they came out of the womb as this like eco-friendly, <laughs> like perfect human yeah, and yeah. like don't acknowledge that it's a process. So then you yeah. feel shitty when you look at how great yeah. they're doing and you're like, God, they're like, they know how to be environmentally yeah. friendly and how to do all these things without acknowledging like, yeah, I lived in Paris and I was a part of this, 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 and this. Yeah. Like, I think of, you know, even a few years ago, how my um, knowledge and practices around sustainability, they're wildly different. Yeah, no, absolutely. Wildly different. And to not acknowledge that. And um, I had to like get out of that phase. Yeah. Like people talk about the angry vegan phase. I feel yeah. like there's, that is so real. It is yeah. so real. I feel absolutely. like there's an angry vegan, angry sustainability activist. Like yeah. there's that phase where you get all the information and you're like, oh, this shit is exactly. really messed up. Yeah. And I think you need to process things. Yes. Like it's, it's, it's not easy, like learning about all the terrible things that are happening in the world. It's scary. It's mm -hmm. sad. And you have all the rights to be angry. But as you said, um, I think it's, it's a phase. And if it's not, it's okay as well. You know, everybody does their own thing. But I think it's about choosing your battle as well. And what mm. I realized is that I was just like you, like I was really angry at a lot of people around me. And that ended up making me really sad because I just, I was judging my friends all the time. I was judging my family. I couldn't go on a vacation with people without yes. just being like, you're ordering a plastic straw? Like seriously, do you not care about turtles at all? Yes. Um, our, like meat? Oh my God, you're disgusting. And, and I was, I, as you said, I was just like not enjoying and I was angry all the time. And 
it kind of wore off and mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to say like what changed, but it, it did change and I'm so grateful and I'm so yeah. happy that it did because yeah, I wasn't enjoying myself anymore. And now I, I try to judge people less. Um, I, what I realize is also like I have friends and a lot of them don't care about sustainability and that makes me sad, but I love them for other reasons. I love right. them because they're loyal, because they're funny, because they're smart, because they're good friends, uh, because we've been through a lot together and that's fine, you know? And mm. like, I, I love my parents, they still eat meat, they're not eco-friendly, they fly a lot, but still love them. Um, right. So you kind of need to focus on what you love and also choose your battle and save your energy. And I've also yes. realized that it's like being angry and blaming people, it takes a lot of energy. And at the end of the day, if you really want to make a change, you've got a limited amount of energy to dedicate to a cause. And that cause can be anything. It can be veganism. It can be zero waste. It can be just put your energy in this. Try to at least rather than focus on the little things. Because once again, the little things aren't going to change the world, no matter how good they are. They're great. But they're not going to change the world and your energy. And also there's this thing that I, I, I really like is like, I can't remember what it says exactly, but it's like resting or, or, you know, focusing on mental health. It's actually an act of rebellion mm. in a capitalist system that encourages constant productivity, constant yes. uh, having your brain, you know, buzzing. So just taking a step back and focusing on your mental health and your energy and where you want to focus it, that's already an act of resistance. You don't need to be everywhere at once, yeah. but it takes a while to figure that out. <laughs> yes. And that, I think that's so important. I'm um, a health and wellness coach. And one of the things that really motivated me to do that was realizing when I feel my best, when I feel healthy, when I'm eating right, when I'm nourishing my body, all the things, yeah. then I am way, I am way more capable of showing up for the world and all the things I care yeah. about. So if I can help people individually feel better, like selfishly, I feel like yeah. I'm setting them up to then be better citizens yeah. and take care of the world because we can't tackle those things when our tank is empty. Yeah. And I tried. No. I've tried many times <laughs> to tackle the world's problems on empty and it just doesn't yeah. work. It doesn't work. Yeah. And I think the thing you said about um anger and energy is really important too because I've been thinking a lot lately about how it's okay to be angry. It's like what you do with it. Yeah. So like, yeah, I'm angry at all these things, but being angry at my friends isn't changing anything, but being angry at the system could maybe change some things. Exactly. Exactly. It's who you direct your anger towards. Yes. Um, Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. So would you say that veganism was kind of your like insert point into this movement? Um, Not really, because... I have said when I studied environmental science and management, uh, it was actually quite, I mean, no, it wasn't funny, but it, it's interesting to see that even in a master's about sustainability, and that was seven years ago. So maybe that has changed since. And I know with the other degrees, they really addressed the problem of animal farming. Mm-hmm. But for us, it was never addressed as an issue. I oh, mean, it was addressed as an issue, but from a like, like, the solutions to make cows fart less you right. know and we can reuse cow poo for other reasons but it was never the actual concept of animal farming that was considered mm. an issue and i learned that from later so okay. i wouldn't say that was my entry point my entry point i think in the whole sustainability eco-friendly was really palm oil and deforestation 
because as right. I said to you in the beginning like forests are really my weak point yeah um so that was my entry point and then learning about different things and and actually I became vegetarian for a while mm-hmm. um I think about two years and then I went vegan I think classic journey watch cowspiracy yeah. <laughs> found yeah. out about different yeah. studies and just at the end of the day I took a dog as well and she's my baby she's the love of my life and I just couldn't make the difference between my dog that I was literally cherishing like she, she is the most precious thing for me and a veal or I mean, right. not a veal but I, I don't know how you call them in, in French you say a vaude. so I don't know is it a, like the baby cow <laughs> oh yeah 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 a calf or whatever mm-hmm. yeah and I just like I couldn't make the difference anymore and also like it was both from for animal rights reasons of course but also for sustainability reason that I, I went vegan yeah it's been interesting to talk to people on the podcast it's um been and this just happened organically through conversations I've had with people that um food and veganism specifically has been an entry point for a lot of people into sustainability, yeah. uh, myself included, because yeah. I just went vegan for health reasons. And then it was like the domino yeah. effect of all the other things that come along with the agriculture systems and everything yeah. else. Um, exactly. So I was just curious if that was your journey <laughs> as well, but it sounds like the orangutans and the palm oil. Yeah. Um, which is something I don't know enough about. Like that is, um, I've talked to one other guest about palm oil, um, but I think I'm surprised that that doesn't get talked about more. There was a big, big, big outrage about palm oil in Europe a few years ago. And actually it's funny because my first job, I think I can talk about that now because I've I've left it a few years ago, but (laughs) essentially my first job was as a sustainability consultant in a sustainability consultancy firm working for big companies, trying to make their supply chain deforestation free. And what commodity did I end up working on as my first job? Palm oil. Of course, (laughs) the universe, of course. And what I learned, and that kind of applies to all of my views on sustainability. I used to really think that it was like black and white the whole time. Mm -hmm. And now I don't anymore. And it's especially true with all types of commodities. So like commodities are like products essentially and for palm oil I learned that there's no such thing as black and white because 45% of palm oil is actually produced by what is we call smallholders and smallholders are farmers that work on land that I think is less I'd have to double check but I think it's less than five hectares so it's it's actually quite small okay one hectare I can't remember I need to double check so it's essentially peasants like really small like farmers that own really small pieces of land that produce 45 percent of the world's palm oil so like saying we don't want to use palm oil anymore is not a good idea because you're potentially putting millions of people in indonesia and malaysia at risk of extreme poverty and just not having a job and not having money to feed their kids anymore so it's really complicated because we've created this globalized system where we promised some people on the other side of the world that we would you know pay them for certain activities whether it's it's fashion whether it's food but the thing is our demand for these products has increased so much that we are responsible for the deforestation of these forests and and the the pollution the environmental consequences and at the same time we're still paying these people really shit amount of money so right 
it's really about rethinking the system from also not only a sustainable point of view of like, let's stop deforestation, but also from a fair and economic point of view, because we made them dependent yeah. on our consumption of palm oil. So how can we make this a different system so that yes, there's no deforestation anymore, but at the same time, we're not completely dropping these millions of people that depend on palm oil to have a living. Is there um, talks in the EU about how to kind of transition when we talk about some of those systems changing? So I know in the US, when people have been talking about dairy farming and um, beef farming for cattle, there's been some money been like kind of trying to be thrown around and other conversations yeah. about, okay, well, we don't want you to not farm. We just want you to farm different things. Yeah. So like soy or yeah. whatever it is. Um, and there's been talks about how to help those farmers transition. Yeah. So they're not doing dairy anymore. They're doing another yeah. crop. Is there talks like that in the EU? So the, the problem, yes, there are, but that mainly applies to EU farmers because we like it's it's this concept that is very strong in international law of national sovereignty mm, mm -hmm. so as the eu we wouldn't be able to say to indonesia right stop deforestation however what we can say and this goes back to the discussion we had at the beginning of these trade agreements that are so powerful we can say we will buy your palm oil but we need to implement a system to ensure that this palm oil is deforestation free mm. Um, so this is ongoing and it has been the case for um, woods, that's the word, right? Woods, like, like yeah, wood, I guess, um, uh, that comes from other parts oh, of the yeah. world. Mm -hmm. um, there's a certification program that is in place to ensure that this wood that enters the EU is not related to deforestation. The problem, as always, it's the implementation and the tracking and making sure that there's money that is being put in the implementation of this so that there's no you know, fake certificates or, or that is that there's no transparency in the supply chain. But on paper, these would be great because they're, it's a partnership. It's not us Europeans, you know, white people saying to Indonesia, yeah. you differ uh, your, your own forest for our consumption, now you need to stop. It's about, you know, implementing a partnership and saying, we will probably still buy your, your palm oil, maybe at a higher price because we'll consume less of it. And in exchange, we need this product to follow a certain set of rules to ensure that not only does it not lead to deforestation, but it also leads to farmers being paid a fair price. Yeah, so that's a lot. It sounds like that's a lot of the lobbying you've been working on, or at least you're really knowledgeable about is those trade agreements and that like partnership, which is so interesting because I don't think that I, at least I have heard that conversation as much about the value that those agreements to like trade agreements for commodities and products can have between whether it's farmers or yeah. um, production. That's really interesting. They're super powerful, these trade agreements. The problem is there's a lot of lobbying going on because of course, some industries in Europe want Europe to sign a trade agreement with the Mercosur because for them, it's not necessarily about receiving meat and soy and a bunch of things from South America. It's about having less taxes, 
for them to ship their products to South America. So notably cars and pharmaceutical products. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you ask any car manufacturers, they would love to enter the South American market. They would love to send their car, just sell their cars, their trucks, whatever. But the problem is like, this is like the, the basis of having trade agreements that promote consumption and shipping of goods is unsustainable. Mm. So we need to transform them to make them weapons and tools of sustainability rather than just money and profits, essentially. Um, and if they use that way, they can be really powerful tools. But we need to ensure that there's no loopholes because currently there's a lot of loopholes right. that allow of for course. Yeah, not, not necessarily good stuff. <laughs> so is the, um, your podcast that I haven't gotten to listen to yet, but I'm really excited because um, I just saw that as I was looking again at your page, I was like, oh, she has a podcast and that's pretty new, recent. right? Like there's only two episodes out and okay. the next one is coming. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, I swear this, this didn't exist a while ago. Um, but I'm really excited about that. I would love for you to talk a little bit um, about the Green Seed Project. So that's the NGO you mentioned yeah. in the beginning. But if you could talk a little bit more about that, I think it's so fascinating. Yeah. So it's, it's currently, unfortunately, on hold because of the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, the idea was to talk about sustainability in schools, high schools and universities, but without necessarily going through the angle of climate breakdown. Because for a lot of youth that we meet, especially in the disadvantaged neighborhoods where we've been working, if you've been living in an urban area your whole life, including with financial struggle you don't necessarily care about the fact that there's less worms in the earth in the soil or you don't really care about you know it's not your priority that, yeah it's so um, removed from their experience exactly. yeah so I was kind of thinking of how we could talk about sustainability and these issues but through a different angle that makes more sense to them so this is how we kind of came up with three different topics that we propose to teachers and they choose based on what they're doing in class. And these hmm. three topics are related to consumption and they're fashion, plastic and food because you dress up every morning, you eat three times a day and yeah. you encounter a lot of plastic in your everyday life. And based on this, we developed the three steps methodology, which is essentially raising awareness, having a debate and then empowering them to implement their own projects to tackle this issue. Oh, I love and that thing with that methodology is that we can talk about climate breakdown we can talk about overconsumption we can talk about workers exploitation but through something that makes a lot of sense to them um, because fashion they, they wear these brands that are problematic mm -hmm. they eat the food that sometimes causes climate breakdown and they use plastic because we all do um, and I have to say it's not about pointing the finger or blaming it's really about making right. them see that they're part of a bigger system and that they can actually act on that system and the last part is, of course, my favorite because they're, they know about the issue. We've had a debate around that where they can ask all the questions. And then we usually tend to end up the discussions in like, why is the capitalist system exploiting workers oh, and I nature? Oh, I love that. I love that. And it's that. really great. Um, and the third part is really about, so we, we have a methodology. I'm not going to get into that. But we ask them to come up with a solution that they could implement in their community or in the school or in the class to tackle one of the issue. And just to give examples of projects that were presented, it's lobbying the head of the school to have, because here in Belgium, you need to wear sports clothes that have the name of the school most of the time. So, you know, um, école de blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And like lobbying the head of the school so that 
the t-shirts and the shorts would be bought from organic uh, would be made from organic cotton and fair trade wow. it's about um making sure that maybe the soda machine gets removed and is replaced by um, a water fountain um it's about organizing orga organizing sorry a secondhand sale in in school with like parents and the local communities it's about going to the local policymaker to ask that there's less ads on the streets and more promotion for, I don't know, recycling or mm -hmm. waste reduction or all this kind of thing. So these are projects that were proposed and some of them were actually implemented. So we were really proud. <laughs> when yeah, that that's amazing. That's so amazing. I think that when I'm disheartened about the world and everything going on, when I think of some of the like young people yeah. like that and that generation that is in school right now they know so much more than I yeah. did at that age about yeah. what's going on in the world that is like gives me hope yeah yeah and it's no it's free it's really great and I think it, it like for me one of the reasons also I wanted to do this project is because I work a lot in policy making so right. I work with people that are completely disconnected from reality let's be very honest and a lot of my job is policy position papers and feedbacks on that specific legislation and doing a social media campaign to put pressure on that specific representative and it's really it's really abstract it's not concrete at all you know we, we of course we're talking about legislation that would impact a lot of things so right that are, that's great but it really is kind of disconnected and i know a lot of people that work in that field and once again you know you do what you do best but i know a lot of people working in the policy sector on sustainability they don't necessarily, you know, live a zero waste lifestyle. They don't necessarily yeah. donate meats. It's, you know, you, you do what you can do. But so for me, I really needed that kind of connection with the grassroots level, with the kids, with the schools, with very concrete hands-on solutions. Um, and to me, that was also a way of finding balance between the, the policymakers and the influencing and, and lobbying and the policy bubble and then going to these schools and meeting these kids and kind of working on long-term project with them. That, that was kind of my balance. <laughs> oh, I love that. I would love to chat with you more about that. I think we need a chapter of the, that NGO <laughs> here. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been, honestly, it's been a great project. I'm a little bummed that it's currently on hold, but it's because, because of here, um, the schools closed in March so from March to June the kids didn't have to go to school this year it's going to be really complicated because they need to essentially do one year of school but also the three and four months that the kids missed last year so they don't really have time for outside projects unfortunately so right. we might start it again in January but it's not really it's not sure yeah oh yeah there's so much going on with yeah. all of that um yeah in that vein working on all of this, specifically being on the policy level, I feel like that can probably, I don't want to assume, but I'm guessing that can be overwhelming <laughs> at <Yeah>. times <laughs> to do that work. How do you um, stay grounded? Like, what do you do to like come back into consciousness and kind of take care of yourself? It's an interesting question because I preach a lot about healthcare, but I'm really bad at it. Uh, healthcare, self-care, sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm really bad at it. And I, 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 I notice that regularly. I'm like, I'm not taking care of my mental health at mm. all. And it's tricky because I don't really have a solution to that. I, I would love to be able to do yoga more and, and work less hours and 
be able to escape to the countryside every weekend. I, I, I can't. I mean, I right. say to myself, I can't. I don't know. I, I think I probably could. Right. Um, and like, for instance, this summer, because, you know, you couldn't fly anywhere. So we had holiday. We actually planned to go hiking in Canada. And we were really excited because we have never been to Canada. And, you know, nature is amazing in Canada. So we thought it'd be great. And of course, that was cancelled. And so instead, we decided to explore the mountains in the south of France. And we kind of went on little, when I say we, it's me, me and my boyfriend. Um, we went on a hiking trip. And it was great because one night out of two, we were sleeping in tents at the summit of the mountain, so no Wi-Fi, no phone connection, mm. no electricity. Yep. Walking six and seven hours, eating something, and then just going to bed at nine because you're exhausted and yes. everything hurts. But that was great, and I felt amazing. I have to say, I felt really, really good. And it's always like that. I come back and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna try to do like this more often to disconnect and to go on weekends. After two weeks back in the swing of things and like I'm connected 24 7 I check the news before going to bed I check the news when I wake up check Twitter all the time I and I know I shouldn't but I haven't really found a way to to deal with this um so I I guess the things that I try to do is yoga and workout and thank god I have dogs so I have (laughs) to take them on walks and that's a really great excuse you know to get out and just take walks with the dogs like every weekend we go in the forest so that's really nice and I'm so grateful that we have dogs but yeah other than that I'm I'm pretty bad I have to say I'm trying to yeah I'm trying to improve but it's just at the moment there's just so much to do and we have such limited amount of time that I'm like running around like a headless chicken Yeah, I just actually, I do a solo podcast episode every week too, just like a short yeah. one. And this week I talked about um, like, what is self-care really? Yeah. Because I think it's been co-opted, especially on social media Yeah. as this like self-care can only be this very luxurious, expensive thing. And I was like, yeah. you know, I think we have to remind ourselves that self-care can be drinking enough water that day. Yeah. You know, exactly. like self-care is like, like a little things. constant, everyday yeah. nourishing. And yeah, I mean, it can be a bubble bath. That's great. That sounds amazing. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be. <laughs> yeah. Like it can be making yourself a really good dinner. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I'm, I'm going to try to disconnect more. Um, we haven't really been able to do that, but this is on my to-do list and yeah, let's see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. as I'm trying to like grow my business and grow this podcast, and yeah. I'm sure you relate, it's just like constant. You're like, oh, I could be doing this. I could be doing this. Yeah. I should be working on this. I can reach out to these new people to be on the podcast. Yeah. Um, and I have been working to disconnect more. And a couple of weekends ago, I did like a 48 hour, no social Ooh, media. Nice. So just like Friday evening to Sunday evening. Yeah. And it sounds, I mean, I sound like such a millennial because I was like, oh my gosh, two days with no social media. <laughs> but when you're trying to grow a business, like, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot, but I felt like a new woman. I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, I just, it made me like delete a few people and unfollow some things too that I was like, oh, it was really nice not seeing that. Yeah. Why yeah, don't I just exactly. not see that all the time? <laughs> Not yeah, just when I'm not on social media. So it's definitely, that's a process too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is. And that might be 
what I'm going to try to do. I don't know yet. Right. Um, I feel like September and December anyway in my line of work is always, is always super busy. Mm. Um, so it's not the greatest period to try new things. But I'm, I still have a lot of holidays to take from work. So I still need to figure out where I'm going to take that. <laughs> well, if you come to Canada, depending on where you go, I'm like an hour from the Canadian border. Ooh, so nice. you nice. want to go hiking, yep. <laughs> let me know. I will. I will definitely. Someday. We will see if if Canada reopens and if we can actually fly out of Europe next year. But if if it's possible, we'll definitely come to Canada next year. Yeah. Um. I can't. I can't go through the border right now either. Canada's like, nope. <laughs> you yeah. are not taking this global pandemic seriously, and they're not exactly. wrong. I can't argue with them. Yeah. We're not doing great in the states. So definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I will, I'll let you know for sure. <laughs> um, I, is there anything that you want to share or you want to talk about that you feel like I didn't give you space to do? Um, no, I think we addressed, I mean, a lot of um, the like interesting and, and important topics. Um, I would, I don't even know, like most of your listeners are from the US or are they mostly global? Um, a lot of U.S., but global actually is growing. Okay. Yeah, because I think what's really important is, and it sounds not, it sounds easy, and I know a lot of people think it's not, but it's about seizing back a democracy. And mm. I know it feels like a Ooh, lot I of the time. I love that. Just pause yeah. <laughs> on that. Seizing back a democracy. Yes. Okay, keep going. <laughs> Because a lot of the time, and I know it's especially the case in the US, like a lot of people are saying it's not a democracy anymore, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's been, and it's a super polarized society and it's really complicated and politics is a complicated topic. But at the end of the day, we still live in democracy, whether we like it or not, and whether we think it's a democracy right. or not. And there's a lot of countries around the world that do not live in a democracy. And let me tell you, there's a big difference. Um, and but the thing is, we've lost over the years that connection with democracy mm. and the very simple way of providing feedbacks and providing and just, you know, engaging with the policymaking. And nowadays, nowadays, and a lot of people around me feel that way, you feel like you get to vote and express your opinion once every five years or four years, depending on how many years mandate, mandate is. And that's it. And in between mm-hmm. these five years or four years, you don't get a voice. And a lot of people feel that way. And this is why they feel really disconnected from yes, politics and policymaking. Yes. But that's not true. That is absolutely not true. You can influence policymaking in between these five years. And this is like the basic citizen's duty, of course, if you're able to. And of course, if you're privileged enough to do that. Absolutely. I wouldn't expect like a single mom of even one kid to just like have time to engage in those processes. Right. But if you are able to, and if you have time to live a zero waste lifestyle, I promise you also have time to engage with politics. Mm. Um, it's it's doable. There are tools out there. There are, I can, you know, if anyone's interested, just reach out. I can send some stuff. I'm actually reading a book right now that it was written by the two, two of the people that organized Bernie Sanders campaign in 2006. And oh, I wow. think it's called How to Organize a Revolution or something like this. And it's about grassroots organizing. And of course, your first step doesn't necessarily need to engage in a presidential campaign. It can be very little and very local stuff. But there are plenty of things that we can do. And 
we need to do that because we can't just sit on our ass all day and complain about politics and systemic and the fact that the system isn't changing. We need to make it change. We need to pressure for change. And the first thing literally can be join your local gardening center or join your local um, plastic free association or whatever. But we need to organize and we need to seize that democracy back because otherwise it's gonna drift away from us and we'll only realize we would have lost it when, once it's gone and then we won't be able to do anything about it anymore. So now it's, there's, there's a threat clearly. There's of course climate breakdown that is a threat. There's a lot of things, racism, uh, systemic injustice, but we are losing democracy, that's a fact. And yes. we need to seize it before it goes away because I promise you, a world without democracy is not a world I wanna live in. Yes. Oh my gosh. I think that that is so, 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 so important. If you have any resources you think would be helpful and you want to send them my way, I can put them in the show notes Yeah. for this episode too. And I just want to, um, I know that you've been so great with time. I just, you said something that sparked, um, a thought I had earlier. You've been using the phrase climate breakdown. Yeah. Is that an intentional choice of words? Can you tell me a little bit about that real quick? So the thing is, um, I can send you an article about The Guardian, actually, which is like this UK media. And they, they chose, I think, two years ago to completely change their vocabulary because climate change, like words are really important, right? And yeah. saying climate change doesn't at all reflect the urgency and the crisis we're in. Um, climate breakdown reveals that it's breaking down. It literally mm. is. It's not just changing because changing can change can be positive. It can be negative. It can be huge. Right. It can be super small. But breakdown means a breakdown right. or climate crisis as well it's just choosing your words carefully to highlight the situation that we're in and not reduce it to something it's not and i mm-hmm. feel like climate change is not even like closely to being strong enough to talk about the greater threat to humanity because this is it at the end of the day it's the greater threat to humanity so until we actually call it that way we will never be able to address it the way it needs to be addressed. So for me, it's really important to say climate crisis or climate breakdown rather than say climate change or global warming. Yeah, I really, really appreciate that explanation. And I think I will do a um, intentional job to change that language as well. Because even when you said climate breakdown, I feel like I had a different reaction. You know, like when you say that, you're like, oh, breakdown like we've all had a breakdown like we know that's not good and climate change you're right it's just kind of like oh things are like they're ebbing and flowing and whatever yeah yeah exactly exactly so words really do matter um so we need to try to use the right words when possible (laughs) i appreciate that thank you for i you mentioned it earlier you said it earlier and we were like on some really good topic and i was like okay come back to that (laughs) so i'm glad you said it again Cool. (laughs) Well, thank you very, very much for making this work. I really appreciate it. I think everything we talked about is so useful and I know we'll be so well received and I look forward to continuing to connect with you and learn from you and all of that. So thank you so much for having me um, on the podcast. Uh, It was, it was really great chatting about all these kind of things. It's interesting to also hear from like a US perspective because Mm -hmm. I tend to be really wrapped in my EU bubble. Um, So it's interesting to chat with someone who's based in the US and yeah, let's keep in touch and 
good luck with the bear. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I hope they come back um, from a distance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, from a distance, that'd be better, probably. <laughs> yes. Thanks for listening to another episode of Consciously Clueless. Chloe was so lovely to talk to and was really, really good at reminding me and hopefully all of you to enjoy the process and to remember that it's a process. We don't have to change everything overnight, but we can make real systematic change. If you're enjoying this podcast, hit subscribe wherever you're listening. If you want to help this podcast grow, share it with a friend, text it to a family member, post on social media, get it into the ears of more listeners. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and you could get read on air as a review of the week. Until next time. Thank you.